Welcome to the Wheats on Your Mind podcast. My name is Aaron Harries. Wheats on Your Mind is brought to you by the Kansas Wheat Commission and Kansas Association of Wheat Growers. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover in the future or have a question for one of our guests, please email us at podcast at kswheat.com. On average, half of the wheat grown every year in the United States is exported to other countries. This generally applies to Kansas, but can vary each year depending on market conditions. U.S. Wheat Associates is the export market development organization for the U.S. wheat industry. U.S. Wheat promotes the reliability, quality, and value of all six U.S. wheat classes to wheat buyers, millers, bakers, food processors, and government officials in more than 100 countries around the world. Its mission is to develop, maintain, and expand international markets to enhance wheat's profitability for U.S. wheat producers and its value for their customers. Funding for U.S. Wheat Associates comes through checkoff dollars, goods and services from 17 state wheat commissions, and cost share grants from the USDA's Foreign Ag Service. Dalton Henry is the Vice President of Policy for U.S. Wheat Associates, and he joins us to provide information on the different players in the global wheat trade game. Welcome, Dalton. Before we get into specifics, why don't we go through a general overview of who the major players are in wheat production and exports across the globe? Who are those main states that are competing with the U.S. for wheat exports? Thanks for having me on today, Aaron. And when we think about the global wheat exporter landscape, if you will, you maybe kind of break uh, global suppliers down in, into a couple of categories. And traditionally, I think a lot of folks, you know, prior to just a couple of years ago, really identified the major exporters as being similar to the U.S. in terms of both production dynamics, uh, status as countries, and and generally being quali- seen as quality wheat suppliers. And in that category, you'd have the European Union, which most trade analysts kind of count as one large exporter instead of as individual countries with a you know a wide production area. Uh, in, in really significant exports, Australia and Canada uh, certainly make, make that category as, as traditional significant exporters uh, and, and most often head-to-head competitors uh, with the U.S. Uh, but then what you've really probably seen here in uh, really the last decade is the emergence of significant exportable wheat supplies out of the Black Sea. Uh, largely your two big players there, Ukraine and Russia. Certainly there are a host of others that, that we've skipped over, but among that group right there, you'd have the top five or six global wheat exporters in, in any given year. And that's quite a swing when we're talking about the Black Sea. Uh, decades ago, um, back when I was younger and the Soviet Union still existed, that, of course, was a major customer of U.S. wheat, and now I believe they're like you said, they're our number one competitor. Certainly. And and even going back, uh, not as far as the the actual Soviet Union days, but even at, at the turn of the century, we still had Russia as a food assistance destination from the U.S. So, so not even just an, an importer and a customer, but a, a government-to-government donational uh, market there for the U.S. And then as we've seen, you know, the commercial scale of their farms grow, investments grow there. 
uh, and kind of the privatization of some of that over the last two decades, they've grown to the point where, you know, for the last several years, they've been the number one wheat exporter in the world. This year, most uh, most watchers have them projected at more than 40 million tons of uh, wheat exports, which is just an incredible growth to think about, uh, especially given what what's happened to U.S. exports at about the same time. The U.S. has different types of trade agreements, or there's different types of global trade agreements that can be made, you know, bilateral between two countries, trilateral, multilateral. Uh, please give us some examples of some of those that, that are effective. Does, does the U.S. have a preference on what type of trade agreement we have when it comes to wheat? Preferences are a tough thing to nail down because they seem to, to move so frequently uh, in the U.S., both uh, from a policymaker standpoint and from the, the perspective of the general public, as we would see measured in, in polls done by Gallup and others. But really, when we think about trade agreements, you know, generally what comes to people's minds is the traditional free trade agreement. Uh, and of course, the, the most well-known one there uh, for the U.S. is or was NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, actually a series of, of bilateral agreements between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. You went into effect uh, in the days of, of Bill Clinton, and it was, it was negotiated through, through a big piece of the 1990s, led to tremendous uh, economic expansion that uh, really set us up very well to see Mexico rise in significance of wheat ex- of, uh, as a wheat export customer. You know they're now on an annual basis our number one customer uh, by by a pretty significant margin uh, at times. And so as a whole, we've seen a lot of benefits from those. Uh, certainly across agriculture, there are and the agreement has had its detractors that have said it has resulted in manufacturing jobs moving. Uh, overseas and companies outsourcing. And I think a lot of economic studies and work has been done. NAFTA got its most significant update uh, you know, just under the Trump administration when it then became the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, USMCA. Uh, it's a little bit of a tougher acronym to, to make into a single word or, or pronounce. Uh, every now and then you hear somebody try to make it usmaca or uh, something. Wow, that's appropriate. Yeah, yeah it, it, it doesn't work uh, at all. And a lot of those, the changes that were made to it really didn't deal much with true market access or you know, reducing tariffs and liberalizing markets as much as it was meant to tighten rules, uh, things like rules of origin. So how much of a product has to be produced in Mexico in order for it to enter the United States duty-free. And we're, we've seen a lot of this uh, so far in the news, especially around auto manufacturing. We're going to see more of it. Uh, but really, yeah, I think one of the exciting things, and, and I preface uh, the rest of the discussion about what kind of trade agreements there are with USMCA, because it passed through the United States Congress with overwhelming bipartisan majorities just a few short years ago. And a lot of folks would say it was because of the, those types of changes on things like rules of origin and uh, labor agreements and labor standards and rules in the other countries. But we had tremendous bipartisan support, something that we've not seen in a, in a free trade agreement in history. But yet now we really as a country seem to have moved to the point where we're not willing to talk seriously about true free trade agreements. So just a quick sidebar there. All trade agreements need to be ratified by the U.S. Congress, or are there, are there are some loopholes there? So there are some loopholes. As 
The only time it has to be ratified by the U.S. Congress is if it's going to make changes to the U.S. domestic law. And so for those of us in the U.S., our tariff schedule, you know, essentially the, the tariffs that exporters in other countries pay to bring goods into the U.S. is codified in, in U.S. law. And so if you're going to edit or adjust tariffs, generally it's going to have to go to or other market access components, you know, set up a tariff rate quota for a specific country, uh, which allows them to bring a specified amount of goods in under a a certain specified lower rate, right? It's a way of opening up some market access, but not just going totally tariff free. So anything that involves that kind of market access is going to have to go to Congress. And at that point, it's going to require much more uh, broad-based bipartisan support. Let's talk about bilateral trade agreements. I think a couple of examples uh, specifically when it, uh, that benefit wheat, uh, Columbia Free Trade Agreement, that's been in place for quite a while now. I think one of the newest ones is South Korea. Is that correct? A bilateral trade agreement. Are those easier to get to because you're only dealing with one country? I think there's a perspective uh, from a, a negotiating standpoint that it is easier but I think at the end of the day, it, it really depends a lot as well on the country or pair of countries that you're talking about. And are they relatively natural trading partners where each country has some strengths and some weaknesses so that those trade-offs aren't as politically toxic as, as they might be otherwise? You think about you know the U.S. and Mexico, really good uh, partners because our agricultural production doesn't overlap all that much. You know, we do see some concerns in U.S. fruit and veggie sector. Uh, but for the most part, they need what we produce. And they provide a really good manufacturing center uh, for as part of the U.S. supply chain. And so it, they just don't compete as much head to head. And I think when we look at countries that we've done bilateral agreements with, you largely see that played out again and again over time, whether that's in South Korea, where you've got some strategic defense and national security interests that can be bolstered. Colombia is certainly a, a good example. Uh, you had uh, you know, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, which was multilateral, but similar region and similar dynamics. So multilateral agreements can also uh, kind of fit that mold a little bit. I think where a bilateral agreement starts to struggle is when you get to countries that are maybe a little bit more similar. And think about the challenges that we've had of the US-EU, right? Where that's been something that it's interesting to refer to it as a bilateral because it is multiple countries on the European side, but from a negotiating standpoint, it's just two entities. The US-UK faced a similar challenging dynamic where from an economic standpoint, you know, we produce a fair bit of the same thing, fairly similar uh, places on a developmental uh, spectrum, and probably somewhat similar consumer preferences for goods. And so at times, bilateral agreements can be more challenging. I think we've seen more of them go forward because we were kind of going around the world picking up the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. And, and I've talked about these in the context of wheat, but of course, these agreements aren't just about wheat. They're about many things from automobiles to different commodities. So what is U.S. wheat's role there in making sure out of this whole grand agreement that wheat is represented in some way? So that process, when we're embarking on a true free trade agreement negotiation, actually starts with Congress, even though the negotiating function is done by the administration, uh, presidential administration, 
under the auspices of the U.S. Trade Representative. And that process with Congress is through the launching of uh, Congress giving a set of permissions to the administration called Trade Promotion Authority, or TPA. And for those that have been involved in agricultural organizations, right, we'll all remember when we used to go to the Hill and lobby for TPA. And what that essentially lays out is from a, a congressional standpoint, they say, all right, we will set out a set of goals, which are going to include things like market access and labor uh, standards and environmental standards and whatever else Congress wants to lay out for goals. And that's a, a piece where certainly ag organizations as a whole weigh in and make sure that their priorities are reflected in that. And if there are things that they're defensive of, that those are also reflected in the TPA document. That then gives permission once it's passed to the administration to go out and negotiate an agreement. And as long as they consult with Congress, uh, as long as they follow those goals that Congress laid out, Congress then agrees to provide an up or down vote on that trade agreement uh, when it eventually needs to be ratified which as you think about it is a really big deal because we've seen how challenging it is to get anything through Congress today, uh, especially with the prospect of, of them not being able to amend it. So where U.S. Wheat's work comes in is on the front end uh, in terms of being engaged in the TPA process and then meeting with and actually oftentimes attending trade rounds where several of us are cleared advisors so that we can read and review text and provide feedback directly to negotiators to make sure that our goals are being met and that what's being agreed to will, at the end of the day, actually open additional market access for U.S. wheat producers. Let's take a step back to early in the Trump administration. There's something uh, called TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, out there. That agreement, I don't know if it had not been ratified by Congress at that point, but there are effects and consequences to actions here. So ultimately, the United States ended up not being part of TPP and suddenly that led to a huge disadvantage for U.S. wheat versus Canadian wheat. That's a quick summary of the story. Give us give us some details on that. No, I, I think you're spot on with that one. And it, it highlights the challenge that we saw as we moved from our discussion earlier in bilateral trade agreements to multilateral trade agreements, right? Where you've got 12 or more countries in that case trying to agree on a single set of standards and rules and there are some countries in there that make really good free trade agreement partner candidates uh, for certain other countries and products, but others maybe not so much. And so those kinds of agreements hold a lot of hope and promise. Uh, but at the same time, they can be more politically challenging, right? Just more people at the table, more likely that you've got some vested interest that's going to have a, have a challenge with it. The important thing to note uh, when we think about Trump you know, walking away from TPP is is that the Obama administration never actually submitted the final agreement to Congress for approval. Okay, and so while a lot of folks will will place this blame for not being in, in TPP on the Trump administration and their anti trade rhetoric, I think at at the end of the day we need to recognize that both parties walked away from that agreement. Uh, now, would one party maybe have come back uh, at some point? I, that's probably a, a subject for debate among political scientists. What did happen is when the U.S. walked out of that one, the other countries went forward and they, they renamed it just slightly. It became the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP. And it did have a number of really important U.S. wheat markets, uh, probably no 
no market more important in that that list of countries in terms of market access and making sure we stay on a level playing field with both the Canadians and the Australians than Japan, uh, as, as you referenced uh, very, very accurately there. The challenge was is that because they stayed in that agreement, Australia and Canada secured better market access into the Japanese market than the U.S. had. Uh, and that was going to be problematic. Uh, it was a most free trade agreements are done with a like multi-year reduction in tariffs or effective tariffs. And so the first year that, that they had better access, that it wasn't such a big deal. You know, the U.S. prides itself on producing quality wheat. And so we're often able to command a little bit of a premium. But by the time we started looking at years two, three, four, five, it was going to be really significant money for those Japanese flour millers. So that's where the U.S.-Japan phase one agreement came in, and that was negotiated by the Trump administration. It was very limited in scope, so limited, in fact, that it it didn't meet that threshold of changing U.S. domestic law, so it never had to be ratified by Congress. But in it, you know, a series of trade-offs opened up a fair bit of market access for U.S. agricultural products, including wheat. So from a wheat standpoint, we were completely taken care of and we secured in that phase one agreement the same level and actually on the same schedule of reduction in effective tariff going into Japan as the Canadians and Australians had. Is it fair to say that Japan didn't necessarily want U.S. wheat to be at a disadvantage? I mean, they've, they've been a big customer of U.S. wheat and I think appreciated. They, I, I don't imagine they wanted Canada to be their only source. Of wheat. You're spot on with that. And that's probably why that agreement, the U.S.-Japan agreement, may be one of the most quickly agreed to and implemented agreements in, in the history of U.S. trade policy, as it really came together over a matter of just months. You could look at other examples in the past where countries have maybe not been as long term of customers and where they've maybe held out on elements of an agreement to try to win concessions for some other product that they want to export. You know, you'd maybe have a little bit of that situation in Colombia. Mm-hmm. If we think back about 15, uh, 16 years to when that one was being negotiated, Canada came in, the U.S. negotiated with Colombia uh, under President Bush. We had a final agreement. The election changed, right? The House of Representatives flipped. And all of a sudden, the U.S., uh, you know, whether or not we were actually going to ratify was, was a, a fairly open question. During that time, Canada swooped in, signed an agreement of their own, and actually got a preferential tariff rate. And we, we worked with the Colombians, and they came part way. They reduced their tariff by about half unilaterally, uh, while the U.S. kind of worked out our own domestic political situation. But they weren't willing to go all the way uh, just on the basis of goodwill and, and not getting anything in return. And, and so that it is something that cuts both ways a little bit, uh, even among long-term customers. Okay. So there are many trade agreements out there, U.S., uh, bilateral, multilateral, other. Uh, where are the gaps right now? I, I, I know you mentioned Europe, but there are there other places where work needs to be done? So the, the big places where we don't have a true bilateral trade agreement. Uh, you think Europe is, is certainly spot up, spot on there. Uh, and that, that's been a challenging one to try to negotiate, especially among agricultural interests. They're just pretty sensitive. The African continent mm-hmm. is another one. Uh, and so we do have a free trade agreement with Morocco, French Africa, uh, or North Africa. And so as, 
as we think about uh, the rest of the continent, though, being able to get a toehold and set up a high standard agreement that is truly bilateral in nature, today all of our benefits are one way. Uh, the African Growth and Opportunity Act provides uh, more open access for African goods into the U.S., but they're not required to provide anything like that in return. And then uh, Southeast Asia, and that was the Southeast Asia piece was really what the Trans-Pacific Partnership was designed to address, uh, where you've got a, a number of, of countries, especially think ASEAN countries, where we have good, strong trade ties, but no real formal agreement other than the rules of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, uh, to govern that trade. Yeah, so speaking of uh, strong trade ties with wheat, Nigeria, Africa, no trade agreement with Nigeria? That's spot on. Uh, and you know, and regularly, especially for, we think about Central Plains wheat, uh, has, has long been a, a very significant customer. You know, we pay a 25% tariff uh, into Nigeria, plus uh, some additional customs charges and fees uh, like we do with many countries. You know, maybe one of the things that, that's not made that one more pressing from a market access standpoint is, is that so far everybody pays that. Right. So Russian wheat going in is going to pay that same tariff rate. Uh, you know, European wheat's going to go in paying that same tariff rate. Now, if, if you reduced the price of wheat by that much in Nigeria, what would we expect to have happen? We'd expect their consumption to go up quite a bit uh, by making by the nature of making that those products more affordable, and that that is a, a critical piece of you know, the underlying philosophy behind free trade agreements and their benefits. And there are things out of our control in Nigeria, you know, currency issues, uh, government controls on agriculture. I think they're they're a big player there too. They are, uh, and just even access to foreign exchange, which is something that uh, we often don't think that much about in terms of trade, but you know, with the majority of that trade occurring in dollars, uh, if you're in a, a country that may have a shortage of foreign exchange, a shortage of U.S. dollars to pay for, and the government and their central bank is actually going to kind of pick favorites and say, all right, well, who needs these limited foreign exchange resources more? Uh, that, that's a really challenging situation to, to put a country's flour millers in. Just rapid fire here, a few countries. Do we have agreements or, or what's in stage there? Uh, Philippines? So no, no agreement there. Uh, you know, we're TPP uh, members, and and but don't currently apply a tariff. Uh, Vietnam, also a, a, another one that where we don't have an agreement, and I think a lot of folks have always looked at that as being a communist country uh, is, is going to make that challenging in a bilateral situation. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Europe, but what about Britain, England? So nothing with the UK yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we launched under the Trump administration, U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement talks. They've got a lot of internal politics to sort out in terms of border controls and Brexit and how they trade with the European continent. Uh, that is one where it would make a real difference for us. We are at a disadvantage relative to Canadian and other suppliers into that market. And while they are a wheat producer, actually a net wheat exporter, it's a very soft, low-protein wheat uh, and, and so right now they allow really high protein U.S. wheat in duty free, but uh, nothing in kind of a, a medium protein range. All right. Let's get into the big boys here, the, the maybe quote unquote trouble spots. So, so first of all, you have tools or the U.S. has tools available to them in trade disputes. You know, what what is the entity that that all works through from the U.S. side of things? 
So maybe even a, a couple of different entities. The the big one is the World Trade Organization or the WTO. And that you know was an agreement that dates back to the mid nineties. A couple of updates every few years since then, uh, that set out a few key principles and rules around how international trade should be governed and should be conducted. They have a dispute settlement body that is supposed to mitigate and essentially rule on disputes between countries. It's a time-consuming and costly process, but it is, as I'm sure we'll talk about, a really important one for U.S. wheat growers. But then in many other instances where we have a bilateral trade agreement, you know, we have separate dispute settlement proceedings or bodies, uh, you know, arbitration panels or something similar, uh, that can be used to help settle those disputes as well. So the WTO has a panel of judges, is that correct? There, there had been some empty spots on there. I know that, that the uh, Trump administration had uh, not necessarily appointed uh, U.S. representatives on that panel. How, how are things now? So the, currently the appeals portion of the dispute body at, at the WTO is, is pretty well defunct because of a lack of uh, effectively judges, that call them panelists. It started under President Obama. So we're actually three U.S. presidential administrations into this effort to hold hostage the appellate body while seeking reforms and modernization, really, efforts to the World Trade Organization as a whole. And so th- this is a challenging position, especially for those in U.S. agriculture who have historically benefited much more from uh, the World Trade Organization and specifically the dispute settlement system than we have been harmed by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so being able to get an appeals function back or get whatever the next version or iteration of that is going to look like is really of critical importance. Uh, we expect significant discussions to take place on that in 2024 as part of the next WTO ministerial meeting. You know, our hope is is that we are able to come to a new solution for that. Uh, but it has been, uh, you know, blocking appointments seems like an odd tool to use to force reform. But it was one of the few tools at the U.S.'s disposal to try to get other countries to be more serious about the need to reform functions at the WTO. Are there any uh, one or two key reforms that we want to have done? Uh, you, it depends a little bit on on which presidential administration. So that, uh, but there clearly are concerns around the precedent-setting nature of appellate rulings, where some U.S. administrations have felt that the appellate body went too far and started providing interpretations of the underlying rules instead of just looking at the rule as it was written and as it read uh, and applying that to the disputes. I think there's also, and and this is one that's popular with a lot of folks, especially in the ag community, is just the timeliness of disputes. That we need to find ways to get the WTO to not only live within the timelines they've previously agreed to, but probably accelerate that some. Okay, so let's, let's go on timeliness here. One example recently in the news is India. India uh, about to be, I believe, the uh, number one wheat producer in the world, bypassing China. Some years they export, some they don't, but they have unfair support practices um, with their farmers. Uh, give us some background on what's going on with India. Absolutely. And I think the easiest way to talk about India is actually to talk about that other huge world wheat producer uh, that just got sued at the WTO uh, you know, or just lost at the WTO, and that's China. 
And so for the purposes of thinking about their domestic support programs or their farm subsidy programs, uh, the two countries are, are very similar. And it, it emphasizes the timeliness concern perfectly because the U.S. in the fall of 2015 filed true uh, dispute settlement proceedings against China uh, for exceeding their allowable limit of support. So when any country joins the World Trade Organization, you know, they, they agree on tariff schedules that are then bound and they can't increase tariffs above that. They uh, you agree to rules on how they'll treat other countries. You can't play favorites, essentially. And they'll also agree to limits on their own spending. And that's the, really the key in both the China and India cases, is, is that they agreed to limits on what they would spend to support agriculture and wheat production specifically. And then they just blew right through those. Uh, in the case of India, the U.S. alleges that it's uh, supporting their wheat producers at 80% of the value of production when their limit is 10% of the value of production. So if, essentially, if you had a wheat, a, a nationwide wheat crop that's worth a million dollars, right, you could spend 10% of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yeah, they are seven or eight times over that. The challenge with timeliness is it, it just takes too long. So we think, we look back at that China case and we didn't finally win it until 2019 and China has yet to actually really make reforms to those programs now here in 2023. And so we're already at a, a six to seven or eight year long process without really the kind of hard deadlines that make that work well. Define what a TRQ is. So a TRQ is a tariff rate quota. Uh, and that is, we have one with China uh-huh. for wheat. And that is where China has said, look, wheat is strategically important to us. We're the world's largest wheat uh, producer, and we're also the world's largest wheat consumer. And so we want to make sure that we provide some level of protection to our domestic wheat industry. But we also want to allow our flour millers some benefit to source wheat from the rest of the world. So a tariff rate quota is a tool that allows them to import, in China's case, 9.64 million tons of wheat at a 1% tariff. Anything above that or anything outside of that TRQ uh, goes in at a 65% tariff. And so it, wow. it's absolutely prohibitive. And, and so that that's the tool and the nature of how those things work. Uh, it kind of provides maybe a little bit of a middle ground uh, where you can provide some protection to domestic producers but yet some market liberalization. So there were TRQs with wheat negotiated with China in either phase one or phase two of that trade agreement. Have they met those quotas? So the China TRQ was agreed to back in about 2000 in the U.S. or 1999, the U.S.-China, you know, essentially an agriculture agreement as part of the Chinese accession to the WTO. When China joined the WTO, this was one of the rules that they agreed to, and they didn't implement it. Uh, it, the China TRQs may be one of the most complex ones in the world, uh, largely because of the extent to which their economy is controlled by the state. And you have so many state owned entities that play in that space. But this was another WTO dispute that the U S took. Uh, we filed this one in late, late 2015, again, won it in 2019, got the new rules in place and China has complied with this one. Okay. And so now for the last three years, China has fully filled that TRQ. And in effect, what they did is they went from being the 16th largest wheat customer 
uh, prior to those new rules being implemented uh, to where now on an annual basis, uh, they're the fourth largest wheat importer uh, in the world. A pretty significant change uh, over really just technical application of rules. And it provides a perfect example where the WTO was able to work uh, on behalf of U.S. agriculture. It was not a quick process, uh, but at the end of the day, we did get a positive result. Yeah, just so for some comparison there, I believe Mexico imports up to 4 million metric tons of wheat per year. China, 1 or 2 million tons in that range? So prior to the new rules, 1 to 2 million tons was a pretty safe bet. You'd had a few years, uh, maybe where world wheat prices got, got fairly cheap, and China had some domestic concerns, and they put it into stockpiles. But since that time, really since you know about the time we were finishing up the trade war with China, they've been you know now just over double the size of Mexico as a global customer, right? In terms of uh, being being at that nine and a half million tons mark. And if the U.S. exports roughly twenty twenty two million tons, that's that's pretty significant. That becomes really significant. Uh, a trade issue that some folks may not be aware of. This one is kind of unique: Turkish flour. Uh, this this doesn't have to do with wheat. It has to do with the end product. It does. Flour and, and even further processed products. So think about cookies, crackers, uh, baking premixes, and things like pasta. And, and this is a longstanding challenge where a country, like in this case, Turkey, has used a series of domestic subsidies and complicated processes and things like export subsidies where they make their products more affordable in international markets than they are in their own home market to, and the term is, dump product into third countries. And normally, that, that's not one that really concerns U.S. wheat that much. Uh, you know, it's between two other countries and, and challenging. But in the case of Turkish flour, it happens at such a scale and at such cheap prices that we see Turkish flour and other products actually offset what would otherwise be exports of U.S. wheat. Uh, and so in a country like the Philippines is, is kind of been the primary example here where Filipino flour millers were having to pay more for U.S. wheat to enter the country than their bakery customers were having to pay to import Turkish flour. Wow. So that's the level of subsidy that existed there. What U.S. wheat's been able to do is over time document those subsidies. We provide that information to the U.S. government, who uses it, the World Trade Organization, to press Turkey for compliance. Uh, that's, as we've said, a time-consuming process. In the meantime, we've also tried to support and have also worked to support our customers by providing that information to them. And at times, they can challenge those flower uh, subsidies under their own domestic laws. Uh, so things like countervailing duty cases or anti-dumping cases... Uh, the Philippines, they put their first anti-dumping duties on Turkish flour uh, just about eight or nine years ago. And since then, have, have really significantly reduced it in the Filipino market, which has been a really good thing for our customers, the, uh, the Filipino millers. And we've worked in a number of other markets to either follow that same pattern or to simply encourage higher tariffs generally on flour and pasta and other products like that. You know, it's a challenging situation for a country, especially a net food importing country. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, we've seen it even in, in countries where food insecurity is a very real thing, uh, such as Haiti, where they've said, look, what we can't have is the limited food processing industry that we have in flour milling, which is a key staple, 
we can't allow a country like Turkey to totally displace that and those jobs and that economic activity out of our own market. And so, you know, Haiti is a country that has stepped up and placed uh, tariffs on a most favored nation. So any member of the WTO is going to pay that same tariff uh, on on flour uh, to be able to counter the Turkish influence there. Well, the last one we'll talk about, and we could spend a whole episode on on the Black Sea, Russia, and Ukraine. We're not going to do that now. But um, uh, Russia, number one, are they a member of the WTO? And number two, how big is the conflict or the issues with with Russia right now? That's a really challenging one, uh, and, and certainly could be a, a whole episode or series of episodes all by itself. As we think about, yes, they are a member of the WTO, so they are obligated to its rules, especially around subsidies and uh, tariff rates and those kinds of things. It has gotten more complicated for them uh, and likely will get more complicated unless we do see a political resolution in the near future because countries are faced with the question of saying, all right, well, should we you essentially... But, and what we've never really had at the WTO is this discussion of how do you kick somebody out? Uh, all discussion, all decisions at the World Trade Organization are made on the basis of consensus. So all 160 some odd member countries have to agree to something, but individual countries can revoke uh, their permanent normal trade status with a country like Russia. And so that's a dis- discussion you've seen in a number of places and a decision that that's been made in a number of places. And and so the WTO has had a number of challenges in recent years, the appellate body process, just the challenge of how do you modernize and reform when everybody has to agree on the same thing. And the Russian-Ukraine conflict is, is going to be a similar challenge for them uh, just because of that dynamic and countries wanting to, to look at this and say, all right, so yes, technically you are a member, but you're not acting uh, in the way that we would expect you to. And so we're we're going to take some action on our own. Uh, that'll, that'll create real challenges for the global trading order. But I think it, it probably also deserves a, a lot of discussion just from a global food security standpoint. And we've seen countries that have said, look, we're not comfortable with being dependent on exports from a country like Russia, who has openly admitted and publicized that they've produced a list of, quote, friendly and unfriendly countries that may be prioritized for exports. You know, that that's something that that doesn't square with the rules of the World Trade Organization, but that we may not have the tools today uh, to tackle. Can a country, and I won't name a country that's doing trade with a Russia who's violating these rules, can that country itself be liable for, for violations? Or are they pretty much off the hook in that situation? From a, a WTO standpoint, they're, they're pretty well off the hook. But what we also have at play are trade sanctions from U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control. And I think that's where you've seen countries get nervous about doing business with Russia, because if they would do any business with a sanctioned entity, and an entity can be a a person or an institution or a business or a a ship vessel, uh, then they are going to be subject from action or to action from the U.S., and other countries that are implementing those sanctions. Okay. It's not always about uh, trade agreements. Uh, there are other trade issues, and I think some of these are a real thorn in your side or a headache or, or phytosanitary issues and, and what is called non-tariff barriers. And uh, I think um, 
Vietnam. I think we're having some issues with that, and we've had some issues with China. Just give us a few examples of those types of things that you have to deal with. Absolutely. And the reason that these are such a thorn in my side and why they are so frustrating is is that a tariff barrier is well known and it has a specific cost, right? It is set at a certain percent or a certain price. And so it's like a threshold. If you can get over it, you're over it and it's behind you. The challenge with a non-tariff barrier uh, is that it's a hard stop, right? If if right now Vietnam finds, and our problem there is uh, the presence of Canadian thistle seeds. Thorn in your side. Exactly. This is like a literal thorn in my side. Uh, then they're going to have the option of rejecting that shipment, uh, requiring that it be cleaned, uh, require that the mill handle that wheat uh, in certain ways that impose additional costs because the concern from the Vietnamese standpoint is is that uh, they believe they don't have Canadian thistles in Vietnam and they believe that they could be introduced into Vietnam if they would come in through wheat shipments. You know, the science would show that Canadian thistle seeds can't act. They will grow there, but they won't actually reproduce uh, because of uh, climate and agronomic conditions and all of those things. But it's a really frustrating one uh, for U.S. suppliers and exporters to try to meet these rules, especially when they don't seem to be grounded in science. The real growing area of challenge that we have uh, is in MRLs, uh, maximum residue limits for common agricultural chemicals. You know, if we would see the EU go forward as many groups would like them to and ban glyphosate domestically within the European Union, many folks would expect that they will also enforce a zero tolerance MRL on glyphosate for, for glyphosate on imported food, which is not possible, which is just not possible. Not if you're going to handle wheat in the same rail cars as you handle soybeans uh, and other products that actually are, uh, you know, Roundup ready or glyphosate tolerant. And so we see that, you know, I use the glyphosate example, but you see that across dozens of agricultural chemicals and they are real challenging because you've you've got these countries that uh, want to bend to some popular will or some interest group uh, that is opposing a technology. And at the end of the day, it ends up taking technology and products that are really important for production agriculture in the U.S. and other exporters potentially off the market. And, and that's a, an area where we spend a growing amount of time, especially if we compare it to how much time we used to spend on free trade agreements. And now that's not nearly as much, and the non-tariff barrier side is, is rapidly growing. So how much in that type of situation does WTO lean on science, sound science? You know, I, you and I would probably argue that that's not sound science. So how does, how does that come into play? So the WTO sets out kind of standards for what a risk assessment looks like. And, but realistically, the WTO rules on sanitary and phytosanitary regulations were written you know, in the 90s. And I don't think that the definition of science has changed since then, but our ability to detect things is much greater than it ever was at that point. And I think you're seeing a number of non-tariff barriers that exist today that weren't expected or anticipated by those rules. So what we really don't have within the WTO today is you know, the, a modernization of those. During their last ministerial, uh, just not quite a year ago, they agreed to embark on uh, some coordinated consultations, we'll call them, 
not actually agreeing to, to change the rules or to make new rules, but at least a real discussion on that. And I think we're hopeful. The European Union, uh, who often promulgates many of these, and other countries will follow along because they want to be able to sell, sell products into the EU, uh, has agreed to be a part of that and is actively participating. And so my hope is, is that by the time we get to this 2024 ministerial, we do have some good news there. Uh, but at the end of the day, those types of barriers are probably the easiest to deal with uh, between two countries. Uh, when you get into a bilateral trade agreement, you get into a faster dispute resolution process. When you're able to put two countries down at the table and say, all right, this is the challenge. Uh, what challenges do you have for me? How can we work on these together? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've not yet found the the magic bullet for taking care of non-tariff barriers. Well, I think we've seen an example of that recently with the North, uh, Canadian American Free, the new name. Yep, USMCA. USMCA. We've seen that with GMO corn to Mexico. It seems like that was addressed pretty fast, pretty head on um, based on science and agreement. And, and Mexico had to walk that back pretty quickly. Well, we'll see if they keep it walked back all the way or if this is in some way slow walk to a future administration. You know, I think one of the real challenges in, in tr- resolving trade barriers is when a country gets kind of backed into the corner on a domestic political issue. Mm-hmm. And you've got to, it, it really is a little bit of the art of the negotiation. And how do you find a way for everybody to save face and to allow trade to continue to flow? Uh, but you're certainly correct about the speed of USMCA in terms of being able to resolve, identify, work on, and resolve the corn incident. And it may be that it, it's not settled immediately, but it's certainly going to be faster than if we had to go through the World Trade Organization where the rules aren't as tight uh, because they just haven't been updated the way USMCA was, uh, and then go through a multi-year panel and appeals process. Well, you've been around the world. You've, you've visited with your counterparts from other countries, let's step into their shoes a little bit bigger picture. What is their perspective of the U.S. as a trading partner? Yeah, I think from a wheat standpoint, it, it's hopefully pretty positive. And we do find that we spend more time working with our competitors on trade policy than we do against them anymore. Now, a lot of that's the, at least with a couple, you know, especially Canada and Australia, you would kind of consider us to have relatively similar uh, agricultural regulatory systems uh, and food regulatory systems and views on technology and agriculture. And so we've found that, you know, whether it's gene editing regulations, mm-hmm. uh, because we all stand to benefit from importing countries, accepting those products one day and doing so under a reasonably harmonized way, uh, or maximum residue limits or you know, maybe what would be considered contaminants, uh, things like mycotoxins, so uh, fusarium or, or dawn uh, in wheat. You know, the U.S. and Canada have a similar and shared position vis-a-vis the European Union on making sure that millers can access supplies of wheat that they're looking for. And from that aspect, I think the hope is is that we are able to work together and there's a favorable view of the U.S., In the past, the U.S. probably does have a little bit of a reputation of of wanting to go it alone and maybe not being as open. Uh, But just as we mentioned with this Indian counter notification, right, the action the U.S. took to try to rein in uh, India's agricultural subsidies, first time in 2018, it was just the U.S. This time, five other countries joined. Okay. Uh, And so that 
I think that there is that is an acknowledgement that at times a more collaborative approach is needed and that going forward, can we build out these little coalitions uh, of partner countries that do hold similar beliefs and that do embrace a free market ideology uh, to be able to make positive change? This current administration, U.S. administration, has it been as aggressive on trade issues as, as previous administrations? It certainly they haven't. Part of that, that's not a completely fair criticism because trade agreements are often seen uh, by U.S. presidential administrations as kind of being a second term priority. Okay. Right? So it's like first term, you've got to get reelected. And so it is all about domestic politics. And then big second picture or second term is kind of big picture. And it's more about legacy and, and making real impactful changes. Uh, and so you know, look at even NAFTA. I mean, so it started under Bush, only got one term, but it wasn't completed there. It was finished by the Clinton administration. And so these are things that take time. Obama didn't really engage in TPP until the second term. And so to a certain extent, I think we do need to give the Biden administration some space. They have put really good people in place, especially on the ag trade front, uh, with, with both of those kind of key positions being confirmed uh, just in early, you know, late 2022. Uh, but what they've really said, and I think this is probably what's concerning to us, is is that they're not working on market access in the traditional sense of they're not talking about tariffs. We're not talking about true free trade agreements. You know, they have a host. We'd probably count it up six, five, six, seven trade dialogues going around the world right now uh, that are being presented. You know, things like. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to get lost in my own acronyms here, but their replacement for TPP, right? It's targeted at Southeast Asia. Uh, but at the same time, if they're not talking about tariffs, that's not going to have anywhere near the impact. It's IPEF, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Okay. Uh, I believe you. I, I knew that it was going to come to me eventually. You get lost in this acronym soup. I can imagine. Uh, and so IPEF is being touted as a replacement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. And yes, there are important things we can do in economic frameworks and bilateral or multilateral dialogues. But at the end of the day, when we put our tariffs on the table and other countries put their tariffs on the table, uh, that opens up true market access. And that's where we've seen the gains in the past for U.S. wheat producers. And that's what we need to get back to, uh, if not now, in the relative near future. Well, Dalton, we haven't even talked about the fact that, you know, there are six different classes of U.S. wheats and they all have their own export channels and, and different customers with different requirements. I'd say U.S. wheat is very fortunate to have you out there uh, representing the wheat farmers. So thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's an honor to do the job and it's a challenging one at times, but certainly something when you do see a trade policy win, especially when it can have a real impact, uh, that's something that hopefully we can all feel good about. That's Dalton Henry. Dalton is the Vice President of Policy for U.S. Wheat Associates, and we thank him for joining us on this episode of the Wheats on Your Mind podcast. If you have any questions you'd like to pass on to Dalton or a topic you'd like us to cover on future episodes, please email us at podcast at kswheat.com. I'm Aaron Harries. Thanks for listening. <music>